come October 31st of this year, uh, many throughout our world will celebrate the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. The Reformation really, in many ways, did not begin when Martin Luther nailed his 95 thesis on the door of the Wittenberg Church. It really began in his own life. Uh, Martin Luther was uh, one of the most intelligent people of his day and probably in the Western world. He entered the university at the age of 13 and earned his bachelor's and master's uh, as quick as anyone, uh, any university would allow someone to do so. He was walking along one day and a thunderstorm struck and it frightened him so bad, he cried out, St. Anne, save me and I will become a monk. And he did. And he became a very devout and observant uh, monk. He was very intense about fasting and prayer and whenever he was tempted in the flesh, he would flagellate himself with a whip. Luther also at times spent uh, some days spending six hours a day in confession of his sins. In fact, he wore out the priests who were there, and they got rather frustrated with him uh, because he would finish confessing his sins, and then he would come back because he feared he'd forgotten some. Now, I don't know, I've met people through the years who felt so bad before God they would you know, make up sins to confess to God and hope that they were going to get right with Him. But that's what Luther did. And Luther traveled to Rome on a pilgrimage and he climbed up the steps of uh, a, the Roman church believing they were the steps that Jesus climbed up in Jerusalem and believing that they had been transported from Jerusalem to Rome. Now they hadn't, but that's what he believed. And every step he climbed up, he climbed up on his knees and he would kiss every step and pray until he got to the very top, and that was a long, long ways. But Luther found no consolation for his soul. He found absolutely no peace in his heart with that approach to getting right and being made right by God. And he got very frustrated. Now, he was ordered to earn his doctorate in theology, and so he attempted to do so and did. And he was ordered to teach or assigned to teach uh, a class on the book of Romans to young uh, ordinands and to ministers uh, there at the university. And he began to teach, and he came to Romans chapter 1, verse 17, where it says, The just shall live by faith. All along, he had looked at the righteousness of God as God's anger, fury, and justice against sinners. But then he discovered by looking at that text that God gives righteousness as a gift. That we don't achieve it, God gives it, and we do it by faith. And, and so it's not that you become justified and then live by faith, we should, but first you come to God by faith and faith alone because that's all you've got, and in that way God makes you righteous before Him. To everyone who believes, the verse before in Romans 1.16 happens to say, well, I want to do for you today what no one did for Luther in his day. And I am concerned this morning, not only about those who are living a scandalous or wicked life, I'm not so much concerned about that as I am concerned about the good people, like Luther, who have no peace in their walk with God. The good people, the religious people, the observant people, who are harboring a place in their heart where they actually trust themselves and their performance, their behavior, their virtue, their maturity, to get them right with God instead of the shed blood and victorious resurrection of Jesus Christ. Hey, do you realize 
the lost people in the New Testament are almost all exclusively religious people and good people. You find very few scandalous, wicked, evil persons on the pages of the New Testament turning to Jesus Christ. Now many did, don't misunderstand me. But on the pages of the New Testament, it is the good people and the religious people who are saved, who come to Jesus Christ. And I need to make one thing perfectly clear. And if you don't get anything today out of the message but this, get it down good, get it down permanently, get it down forever. And that is, the gospel does not make bad people good, it makes dead people live. And and it's not the good people that go to heaven and the bad people that go to hell. It is the saved people that go to heaven and lost people that go to hell. And Billy Sunday said, you can throw a pitchfork in hell and hit a church member on every corner. Hey, I go so far as to say also, you can throw a pitchfork in hell and hit a preacher on every corner. And a preacher's wife, staff member, staff member's wife, deacons and deacons' wife. You can hit observant, sacrificial, giving people any place on any corner in the lake of fire one day, if that were possible. That's what I'm concerned about here today. And as we observe the Lord's Supper today, I hope that what we will do, every one of us, no one excluded, is that we will put our hope and faith and our only hope and faith in the work of Christ for salvation. And that's what we're confessing whenever we take the Lord's Supper. Now Proverbs 30 verse number 12 says, There is a generation that is pure in its own eyes, yet not washed from its filthiness. It's entirely possible to believe that you're right with God and washed from your filthiness and yet be as filthy as anyone else. It's entirely possible. In fact, it is so widespread, Solomon says there are a whole generation. So there's a generation that is pure in its own eyes, yet not washed from its filthiness. Now, is that not ironic? Here they're covered from head to toe in filthiness, and that is a very ugly word in the New Testament. Think of the worst kind of filthiness you can imagine being attached to the human being, and that's what that is. From head to toe, they're covered in filthiness, yet I'm pure. There's a generation just like that. And then Paul says to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. 2 Peter 1.10 says, be sure or make sure of your election and calling. So I want to do for you this morning what no one would do for Luther, and that is to get you to the point where you will examine the reality of saving faith in your life with Jesus Christ. Now I will tell you, every time I hear a message like this, I examine myself. I make sure that God elected and called me. And that means, according to 1 Thessalonians 1, I was encountered by the Holy Spirit I came to God guilty, I repented and placed faith in Jesus. That's what 1 Thessalonians 1 defines election as. And so every time I hear a message like this, I examine myself to see if I've really been saved. And folks, I had a dramatic conversion experience. It's not something I've really struggled with. But the Bible says, examine yourselves and test yourselves. And the Bible says to make sure of your election and your calling. So that's what I do. It reminds me of the bookstore 
that had a sign on the front that says, we have no public restroom, try Amazon.com. <laughs> Turning to yourself is as hopeless. There's no hope in self. And in 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 18, Peter explained that Christ provides reasons for our hope. Beginning in verse number 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom also He went and preached to spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. There is also an antitype which now saves us. Baptism, not the removal of filth from the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who's gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to Him. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That's the point of the text. Well, how does Christ provide hope? Well, there are several things that arise in the text, and the first is this. Christ's suffering purchased my hope. And we'll celebrate that in just a moment. If we have genuine faith in Christ, have followed that with baptism, we're in good standing with our church, we will celebrate that in just a moment. Now verse 18 says several things about Christ's suffering and how it purchased hope. And there's several ways to describe His suffering. It is satisfactory. It's a satisfactory suffering. It says Christ suffered once. Unlike the Old Testament sacrifices, Jesus had to sacrifice only once. Because once He did that, it was over. There was nothing else to do to satisfy the court of God. So it's not just that you and I are satisfied with the death of Jesus. Oh, the news gets better than that. It's not just that we're satisfied with the death of Jesus, but God the judge is satisfied with the death of Jesus. And He proved that by raising Him from the dead. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ was enough to please God the Father. It eliminated, it eliminated our guilt before God. It paid for it. It's satisfactory. But then it's substitutionary. He said He suffered once for all the just for the unjust. So any person that God considers unjust, Jesus died for them. And He's the just one. He is pure. He's holy. He is entirely capable of being the Savior of all mankind. Now, I couldn't do that because I'm not just. I need a Savior. I need someone to sacrifice for me. But Jesus needed no sacrifice for Himself and never offered one for Himself. Instead, Jesus is the just one, and because of that, He is just for all. Now, is there anyone in the world who's not unjust? What does the Bible say? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Is there anyone who's not unjust? Well, Jesus the just one has died for all, the Bible says, are unjust. And that means this, no matter how you've embarrassed yourself, no matter how you have violated the law of God, whether you've done it intentionally or unintentionally, Jesus Christ's death is sufficient for you. It's sufficient to make you right with God. Because Jesus there at the cross took your place. And God the Father is very satisfied with Him. So it's... Um, it's satisfactory. It's substitutionary. Then it's settling. It's settled. It brings us to God. In other words, the war and the complaint that God and His court have against us is settled with the death of Jesus Christ. The case is settled. Now to the Jew, this would be very meaningful. 
Uh, the word used here, it reconciles us to God, was a word that was used for bringing the priest into the Holy of Holies to get as close to God as a Jew could with bringing the sacrifice before God. And this is what the death of Jesus does. It takes all those who trust it alone into the most intimate and closest position next to God ever. And it elevates them all to the level of priests. And so your standing before God is radically transformed. You go from being rejected to being accepted. You go from being judged to being embraced. You go from being a sinner to being a priest before God. And that's what God does with anyone who embraces the death of Christ alone for their salvation. But this would be meaningful not only to the Jew, it would be meaningful also to the Greek. Because the word reconciled was also used among the Greeks for gaining a hearing in the court room and throne room of a king. And so when you come to Jesus Christ, God gives you a place before Him to hear Him announce that He has settled His case against you, that Jesus has done it and satisfied the court, and He has declared you not guilty. The death of Jesus settles every sin before God for everyone who believes. So it's satisfactory and substitutionary settling, and then it's severe. Because He was put to death in the flesh. All the ripping of His flesh. All the piercing of His flesh. All the cries of His voice, all the tears from His eyes were done for you and me. Jesus Christ's suffering was severe enough to satisfy the demands of God. It fulfilled the law's demands. So Jesus' suffering accomplished everything to make faith and trust alone uh, enough to transform us from enemies to sons and to make us something beautiful, not despised, before God. And that is where we place our hope. We do not place our hope in our performance and behavior. Thank God we can place our hope in the performance and behavior of Jesus Christ. That makes all the difference in the world and eternity. There were a group of Scotsmen sitting around a table one day after fishing, and they were trading stories and drinking tea. And one of them made a wild gesture and knocked a cup of tea out of his fellow's hand. And the tea splattered against the wall, a white wall, and made a stain against it. Well, they were kind of uh, upset and they were um, uh, embarrassed about doing so. But one of the men got up from the table and immediately began to draw an animal around it and use that tea stain to shape an animal. And what they did not realize is that they were sitting at the table with England's most accomplished animal artist, Edwin Landseer. And he took the stain and turned it into a stag with antlers. The good news is, God can take the stain of your sin and turn you into something acceptable and elevated by, uh, before God because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's where we put our hope. And so Christ's suffering purchased my hope. But there's a second thing here, and that is, Christ's Spirit proclaims my hope. Now verses 19 and 20 have... Um, bumfuzzled a large number of scholars and interpreters through the years. And I don't understand why. The text is pretty straightforward, and it's not very difficult to understand. Uh, the key word is really found in the New King James Version, at least, in verse number 20. And it is the word when, when God's patience was with those during the days of Noah. But let's look at verses 19 and 20 again. At the end of verse 18, it says, Jesus was raised from the dead by the Holy Spirit, and by that Holy Spirit, in verse 19, Christ also went and preached to spirits, who at the time of the writing of 1 Peter were in prison, who formerly were disobedient, 
when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. Well, what in the world does that mean? There are some that think between Jesus' death and resurrection that He went to hell and He preached, uh, which is equivalent of evangelized, spirits in prison. Well, there's no record of that in the Bible. You would expect that to be the case. Some say He went into eternity and preached to Old Testament saints. But it says that uh, they're in prison, and you can't imagine Old Testament saints in prison. What is Peter talking about here? Well, let's look at it carefully again. Verse 19. By whom... And who's the whom? What's the antecedent of whom? Well, the Spirit at the end of verse 18. By the Holy Spirit, He, Jesus, went and evangelized or preached to spirits who now, when Peter's writing, are in prison. And formerly, these spirits or persons were disobedient. And here's the key word. When once the divine long-suffering or patience waited in the days of Noah. Well, that's just as clear as it can be. The New International Version and the uh, English Standard Version and the uh, Christian Standard Bible and the Net Bible all have um, a similar translation. What are we talking about here? Well, if you put parentheses in verse 20 around who formerly were disobedient, this is how it would read if we put an ellipsis there. By the Holy Spirit, Christ also went and preached to the spirits in prison when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah. Well, it's very simple. What happened is that by the Holy Spirit, Jesus preached to people in Noah's day, who at the time Peter was writing, are now in the prison of hell. So when Noah preached while he was building his ark, he preached the gospel as he understood it in those days and declared it to all of those who were disobedient. Now, they obviously didn't believe. Oh, they did not. But by the Holy Spirit, he preached anyway and declared the gospel anyway to those in his day. Well, by the time Peter writes, they are spirits in prison. Well, the point that Peter is trying to make here is this, that the Holy Spirit communicates good news to hearts and souls. He he communicates through us. And that's why October 22nd is so very important. Jesus promised in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. Whenever you share Christ, invite others to the Lord, you've got the power of God to accompany you every step of the way. So I want this thing to be as easy as A, B, and C. A, attend all services. B, bombard heaven with your prayers. And in your worship guide, there's an opportunity uh, that will direct you to uh, signing up for a prayer time. And then C, collect all the people. As you exit the worship center this morning, there'll be invite cards at all the exits. Take a handful of them and hand them out this week to everyone that you meet. And then make sure everyone in your Sunday school class is contacted the week before. That's as simple as A, B, and C. That's a great formula for a mighty movement of God. The Holy Spirit communicates through us. But also, the Holy Spirit communicates to true believers that they are children of God. I remember the day when I was 17 years old it occurred to me as I was sitting in my room, and I think I just finished studying my Bible, preparing for a lesson or something, and it occurred to me, I'm really going to heaven. Now, I'd been a Christian a little more than a year, and it dawned on me, I am really, according to the Bible, I don't deserve it, but I'm really going to heaven. I've not gotten over that yet. 
And all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit overcame me, and I had some assurance in my heart. Romans 8, 16. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. There's no condition set on that except being a child of God. Every child of God has been assured by the Holy Spirit that he or she, in fact, is a child of God. No child of God should live in continual doubt about his or her status before God. That's what the Holy Spirit does. Now listen, don't you think that if the Holy Spirit would communicate good news like that through Noah to those who would never repent in Noah's day, doesn't it stand to reason if he did that that he will communicate assurance to you if you've obeyed the gospel by repenting and placing faith in Jesus Christ. There should be assurance in the child of God. Doubt, it should not be the constant experience of the child of God. If he communicated to Noah's rebellious neighbors, surely he would communicate to those who know Christ. And so when you have the Holy Spirit involved in the issue, what you have is a higher authority than you a higher authority than your opinion, a higher authority than family members who would like to give you comfort, but they really can't, a higher authority even more than pastors and staff members. You have the third member of the Trinity witnessing to your spirit that you actually belong to God so much so He can give you the title a child of God. Every child of God needs to have that experience. There's the third thing. Christ's resurrection provides hope. Verses 21 and 22. And this is what we will celebrate in the Lord's Supper. The bread reminds us of the body of Jesus that was not only crucified but raised from the dead. And that's what we will be celebrating in just a moment. Now look with me in verses 21 and 22. And this is a contested passage and I don't understand why. But it says there is an antitype or pattern which now saves us. Baptism not the removal of filth from the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God. Now, those who believe in baptismal regeneration, that you're saved by baptism, or that's a part of the approach to salvation, will say, well, look right there. It says right there that baptism saves us. Well, you have to understand a couple of things. Uh, one, it says it's an antitype. It is a pattern. And so the meaning behind the pattern is what's saved, not baptism. But second, the word saved and salvation is used in many different ways throughout the Bible. Peter is falling below the level of the water when he walks on water. And what does he call out for Jesus to do as he's walking on water and sinking? He says what? Lord, save me. Well, he's not thinking about the cancellation of his sins. He doesn't want to die at that moment. And the word salvation is used often in the Old Testament for rescuing Israel from the Babylonians and the Assyrians. Well, it's like the English word can. You can use the word can in English in three different ways with three entirely different meanings. And I'll use it in a sentence. I can, can, a can of peaches. Right? Now, is that not the case? The word can used in three different ways. I can, can, a can of peaches. And that's the way the word salvation is in this text. What that statement means is, I am able to preserve a container of peaches. But I use one word to describe three different realities. I can can a can of peaches. The same is true with the word saved here as well. And 
those who would say that baptism saves you really didn't read the text very carefully, did they? Look what it says again in verse number 21. There's an antitype, and it's merely a type, which now saves us. Baptism, not the removal of what? Filth from the flesh. Other translations say dirt. Filth is better. It's used in the New Testament in James 1.21, Revelation 21.11 for sin. Not the removal of sin from the flesh or the sinful nature. But here's where baptism saves you. Baptism does not remove your guilt before God. It does not remove your sin from your sinful nature. It does not affect the Spirit in that way. And so the Bible does not teach baptismal regeneration, that baptism is a part of salvation. And this text proves it. It's not the removal of filth or sin from the flesh or the sinful nature. But here's how it saves you. Look what it says. It gives us some rescue. But the answer of a good conscience towards God. It's a way that we appeal to God for a good conscience. Baptism then gives us the assurance of salvation when it's done biblically and it follows a conversion experience. That is to say this, ladies and gentlemen, you cannot be sure of your salvation unless you are baptized biblically. Now I want to uh, point out three things about, uh, three conclusions about biblical assurance according to this text. One, the must of assurance. We must have assurance to be effective before God. D.L. Moody said, I've never known anyone to be effective in Christian service who was not sure of salvation, who doubted it. You've got to get that settled today. But there's a second thing. Not only the must, but the means. Assurance comes from trusting Christ and following that with immersion afterwards. Almost everyone in the world that I've ever known that was sprinkled and merely sprinkled or baptized as an infant, doubts the reality of their salvation. In other words, that is not the biblical approach and we don't do it that way. We don't fuss and complain about people who do. But the truth is, is that we follow the biblical approach because only baptism by immersion yields up assurance. And then maturity. Baptism should be done as soon after conversion as possible. In Acts chapter 2, 3,000 repented and believed. And you know what happened, right? They were like uh, some Baptists in the world, like in Eastern Europe. They made all of those people wait a whole year till the next Pentecost before they baptized them. Oh yeah, there are some that do that. I love, for example, our Romanian Baptist friends, some of the most lovely and committed people in the world, endured lots of persecution. But uh, the way they require people to be saved is, um, especially the Moldovan Baptists, is that a sinner will walk down the aisle and get on his or her knees in front of everybody and into a microphone cry out to God for salvation. I saw that one evening when I preached an evangelistic message at um, a church in Kisnau, and we gave the invitation, and a young lady did that right there. Well, that's fine, but that's what they require. And you don't find that anywhere in the Bible. And then they made that poor girl wait a whole year till she proved herself before they baptized her. Well, is that what they did in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost? Is that what they did anywhere in the Bible? Oh, goodness, no. They were baptized immediately when they confessed Jesus Christ as Lord. Listen to me, friend. Baptism is not the reward of maturity. 
Baptism is the entrance into maturity. People will never have assurance and they will never grow until they follow Christ in baptism, having preceded that with a genuine conversion experience. Frankly, I'll be honest with you, I feel kind of guilty about waiting people, uh, making people wait a week. I wish we didn't do that. Uh, we, we may come up with a means to do it like they did in the New Testament. But the point is this, maturity depends on baptism and that is why through the years especially a previous generation, called baptism the what? The first step of obedience. The first step. And only after you take the first step are you able to take the second step. And without biblical baptism following conversion, there is no assurance and no hope of any maturity. So Christ's resurrection then provides this hope. Here's what happens in baptism. The candidate stands in the pool, the baptismal pool. Uh, the candidate uh, then is baptized and by doing that declares his or her faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when that person does that, God gives that person a good conscience before him and clears away any doubt. And he does that by the resurrection of the dead. Now, the resurrection from the dead is terribly exciting for lots of reasons, but one of which, at the end of verse 22, it says, Then Jesus ascended to heaven. That means he was accepted and received on good terms in heaven. And God then made all of heaven subject to the name of Jesus. And so Jesus' posture towards sinners, that they're saved by grace through faith, is now embraced by all of heaven. And his ascension proves every bit of it. What good news there is in Jesus Christ. So Christ is the reason for my hope. And not my performance, and not my behavior, and not my virtue. It's not like Ziggy in the cartoon one day. He called a supervisor and got a voicemail that said, I'm not in right now. Wait for the beep. Hang up and handle it yourself. You can't handle your guilt before God by yourself. And thank God, you don't have to. You've got the Savior to stand in and help you with it. In fact, He carries the whole load. And you'll never be saved and be made right with God until that is all you trust. And this morning, what God is inviting you to do is to vehemently reject, vehemently renounce any hope that you have in yourself, in your virtue, or your performance, or your behavior. Set aside that rebellion. Set aside that wickedness and that self-righteousness that you believe you can be made right with God and that you're saved because of your behavior and turn only to the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what the Spirit is doing today and God invites you to do that. Now others of you today, you've already done that and God is inviting you to become part of Beach Haven. Hurry and do it today and come and follow Him. Others of you, God is moving on you in different ways and our staff will be here to help you in just a moment with that. What we want you to do, however, is what is found in verse number 21 of chapter 1. Through Christ you believe in God who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory so that your faith and hope are in God and not yourself. Let's stand together, let's pray about it and respond to God. Thank you, Father, for the good news of the Word. We honor and bless you forever and forever because of Jesus. We acknowledge that you are the Lord, the Master, the King, and the Savior, and there is no salvation outside the name of Jesus. There's no alternative. There's no class B or class C salvation. There's only one, and it's first class all the way, and we thank you for that. I pray for friends today that they will, by the end of our service, even now, 
place their entire trust and the weight of their hope in Jesus' death, His Spirit, and His resurrection. Would you please move in the way that you do to communicate the reality of this truth? And we give it to you and trust you for uh, its fruit and its success. Thank you, God, for hearing us. Now, we're going to sing a song. And as we sing, why don't you step out from where you are and come meet a staff member and share your decision with that staff member. Maybe you need to come to know Christ or become part of Beach Haven. Or maybe God is doing something else in your heart and life. We want to help you with that. And we're going to sing and we're going to ask you to come. Let me finish my prayer and then you come. God, I want to ask that you will cleanse us thoroughly and make us whiter than snow. And I pray that our consciences will be entirely clear before we ever enter into the Lord's Supper. Help us all to obey the promptings of the Spirit now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.